Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Creative Health Podcast, where we share stories about arts, culture, and creativity supporting people's health and well being. I'm your host, Laura Bailey. Please note that this episode discusses loss of family members and resulting grief, trauma responses, and PTSD. Please check the show notes for more detail if you might find this triggering. My guest for this episode is Kiz Manley. Kiz is the UK's first hip hop therapist. In 2012, she set up Hip Hop Heals, a mental health social enterprise that spreads knowledge and research about trauma-informed hip hop. She hosts and produces her own podcast called Glow With The Flow on therapeutic hip hop, offering radical solutions to homelessness and mental ill health. The work stems from her own lived experiences of loss and grief, and she now uses this to amplify the voices of others and people-powered change to improve health systems. Kiz also works as the lived experience and program coordinator at UCL for a big research program called Mobilising Community Assets to Tackle Health Inequalities. Kiz is passionate, political, funny and frank. She resonates kindness. Here's our conversation. Hi, Kiz. Welcome to Creative Health Podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me, Laura. You are very, very welcome. Thanks for agreeing to share your story with our listeners. I think it's fair to say that your journey to where you are now as a person and a professional is going to really resonate with a lot of people. So I really appreciate you coming along to share it. And I mentioned in the introduction that you set up a social enterprise in 2013 called Hip Hop Heals. And I want to talk about your personal lived experience, which led to setting up Hip Hop Heals and all about the work through that organization. But first, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Were you creative as a child and was creativity present in your home? Yes, it was. My dad used to um, write poetry every single day when I was a kid. We used to be driving somewhere randomly, pull over, and he'd start to fiddle around with slips of old paper and envelopes that he had stored in the, uh, the sun visor. And then he'd find a pen and then he'd be sat there writing. Like, Dad, I thought we were on the way to so-and-so. And he's like, oh, I'm just writing a poem. I've got these words in my head. I've got to write them down. Oh, wow. And I was like, what's a poem? And he'd say, it's a way of saying the most in the least words. And I was like, but what is a poem? What do you mean saying the most in the least words? And he was like, it's a way of writing where you put all the meaning into really short ideas that you write down. And I still didn't get it for ages because when you're a little kid, you can't conceptualise those kinds of um, ethereal concepts like floaty poetry in the in the atmosphere <laughs> floating around in your imagination and then pulling them down into reality with a pen and paper. So that was going on. And um, my mum was like a magician in the kitchen. So her creative expression was through food. And I'm Indian. My parents both came over in the 60s. And... If you'd open the fridge and see nothing there, my mum would come back and there'd be a massive, mad feast with flavours and foods that you never even conceptualised. And I was like, what's this? And she said, I don't know, I just made it up. <sighs> so she'd make little balls of fried things and little breads or little stuffed things or new kinds of curries. It was 
amazing. So I had really creative parents, although they were, you know, immigrants doing working class jobs. My dad worked in a factory when I was a kid as a steel worker when I was born. And my mum was a stay at home mum. And then they ended up owning their own shoe shop and then a news agents. And, you know, they would had very normal lives. But when they went to a family function, they would be asked to do speeches, songs, perform poems. So, yeah. Oh, I love that. So you were brought up in a household where expressing yourself was really encouraged. Yeah, it's mad, though, because in an Indian household, the ideas around mental health aren't always at the surface. But expressing your views on social injustice or, you know, expressing your mental well-being in a poem is fine. But then maybe talking about it and bringing issues up outside of that wasn't something that was the norm. So it was a double-edged sword. And lots of these types of things have two kind of polar kind of opposing forces going on. So it's quite quite mad yeah I can see that and so did you then start to take up things like poetry when you were young because of your dad and your mum and did you do art at school what was your experience there yeah so my eldest sister Raj she used to buy me books with an outsider protagonist because when she was a child she's 16 17 years my senior and when she was a child she'd always see white western figure as the leader with agency in their own lives and not somebody that was black or brown. So when I was growing up, in 1979 I was born, so I was growing up in the early 80s and my sister made sure that I had even like animal outsider figures that were outside of the pack, like White Fang, African literature with little girls and little boys at the centre of the story, Indian girls at the centre of the story. And I was really privileged in that sense. So I grew up with a love of reading because my sister had bought me all these amazing books and I used to be good at English. I had five brothers and sisters, so they're all a lot older than me and they were talking to me in adult language. So I picked up the sort of label chatterbox quite quickly as a kid. (laughs) But, you know, I had loads of stimulation around language and creativity. And then when I went to school, English was the thing that I could just naturally do and found easy. So... I went on to become an English teacher. I did a master's in literature and that was an MA. I did an MSc in creative writing for therapeutic purposes. So all of this sort of language kind of poetry kind of stuff, it's been there from under the surface. Yeah. And just this thing about like seeing yourself as a brown person in literature and the things that you're engaging with, that's fantastic for you but I know that that's not always the experience for black and brown people and I've talked to other people about this about how if you don't see yourself reflected back at you in those sorts of things then obviously that can have a real negative impact on your self-identity can't it yeah when I went to school the People in the textbooks were tokenistic it was like Jane and Jasteep are doing Uh, sums Uh, you know in the sort of textbooks there was like a token brown person and I'd always look at that and um, just feel like it was there for a tick box activity with a textbook publisher kind of thing but um, I was quite fortunate that I had an older mentor figure a sister that was making sure I didn't experience those things yeah that's really good yeah when I grew up 
maybe that helped me to make happen what I didn't see for others myself because I've been role modeled. So the work that I do today is about that. It's creating a space for things that I want, which I want to see that I love that I don't see happening outside. So um, I think maybe I can attribute that to the situation that I had at home. Yeah, that's really lovely. And you mentioned there that you studied literature and, and then creative writing for therapeutic purposes. When did the therapy side start to come into your life and your studies? It started in, say, 2006-7. I had a breakdown, and that breakdown was a result of unprocessed grief, traumatic grief. There was, I'll give, to give a little trigger warning, I'm going to talk about some sensitive subjects. Yeah, thank you. So I had an older sister that was a uh, couple of years, year and a half younger than Raj, who unfortunately passed away. It was a sudden car accident as I was leaving my university graduation sort of weekend and I was at a festival and I woke up the next morning and found that she was in intensive care in a coma with several spinal breakages. So I came out of a period of being elated for the weekend with my best mates from uni having a great time celebrating to this massive sudden shock. And what that did was it created a, a, a dissociation in me. Right. So I was lost for a couple of years while I was like a ghost in the shell. And to get back to myself, I, um, well, I didn't. I didn't until after I had the breakdown. I didn't have any form of connection to who I was. So I was severely dissociated and I experienced all kind of harmful behaviours. There was all sorts of things going on in the sort of culture that I was grieving because there were two cultures in my life, Indian culture and British culture, mm. and they responded to grief differently. Being on a tightrope between the two meant that I was unable to get off the tightrope onto a stable ground between either culture, and I was constantly hanging in the balance, and it was I was teetering on the edge. It was really uncomfortable, and there were all sorts of forces acting upon me, which meant that I became dissociated, the emotional sort of stress caused health problems so I was physically unable to walk for three months oh wow I literally couldn't use my left leg and bear weight so I ended up on crutches saw an osteopath nothing wrong with me a physiotherapist nothing wrong with me you know repeatedly going back and forth to the doctor and then you know breaking down with tears because I was in a pre high pressure situation at home there was other things going on as well my dad was ill at the time so my sister was on her way to say her last words to my dad and then she had a crash because, uh, you know, it was an unexplained crash with a brand new car, which the coroner's inquest could not find any reason for. It was just a freak accident with no other cars involved. And it just um, went out of control by itself. So without any of these explanations as to why somebody so important in my life had gone and then still having my dad in hospital ill, you know what I mean? He'd asked my sister not to come and visit and to and to just rest for the weekend because it was a bank holiday and she had her business. So he he just said, just chill with the kids, stay at home. And she rang three times and three times my parents said, just chill at home. You live in Plymouth, we're in Worcestershire. It'll take you three and a half, four hours. You've got a baby and a teenager. But she brought them with her and they're fine. They're still alive. Mm. But unfortunately, she passed away after five days. So... With the seven-year grief repression that I experienced following, 
there were so many health issues that I experienced and I presented at the at multiple medical staff stores. Like I'd already mentioned the chiropractor, the doctor, the physio. I had grief counselling. I saw psychologists. I saw people for this, that and the other. None of them said, you have classic signs of PTSD and trauma. This is what we can do for you. Right. So I actually had a breakdown, an outpouring of traumatised grief, which was a delayed response. And it wiped me out for six months. So I couldn't leave my house for six weeks because I had agoraphobia. So other points I was unable to get up. I was in other points I was unable to sleep. Other points I'd have horrific nightmares for six weeks on the trot where I was seeing things that were unimaginably terrifying. And so it was six months of being severely disturbed and they were all trauma signs. But the fact that later on I found out black and brown people are not diagnosed with equal care and attention and they're not treated with the same sort of soft interventions when they're appropriate they're sent to more harsh interventions like being sectioned or imprisoned rather than being offered talking therapies or medication I was one of those statistics but discovering arts and health in 2007 I was looking at how I could use creativity to help me during this really difficult breakdown And as I started to learn about what arts and health is, who's doing it, people in different parts of the world, what can be done, what I can do to help myself, I started to think there are other people like me who probably don't want to take medication because the first thing I was offered was antidepressants. Of course. And in Indian culture, the garden is your medicine cabinet. Mm. And we're brought up with the idea that, you know, medicine's an outside thing. And if you think about it, it's logical because... If you grow up on a farm in a rural village in a remote part of the country or whatever, there's no doctor on the corner. There's no dentist on the corner. There's no pharmacy except for, you know, you've got to make a special trip and it costs money. So we forget the privilege that we have growing up in England. So, yeah, it's normal to just, you know, the community provides support through grief. The community provides mental encouragement when there's a life transition like a wedding. So that's why in Asian Indian culture, we've got a massive communal sense of identity and sharing in these big milestones. But um, unfortunately, it wasn't a clear cut death where those things were able to support me or help me. And in fact, they actually, they were a double edged sword, like I said. So after that 2007 point entry point into arts and health, Right. As I went on to train and learn and and do the work, I started to discover all these inequalities. So as well as wanting to pass back my experience of healing through grief in the creative processes that I'd used, I also started to look at, okay, black and brown people aren't represented in this work. They're not represented in the work that's offered. And I keep saying they, I mean, we, we are not represented in the planning and strategy because our needs aren't there on the table at the foreground of decision makers sort of policy writing and commissioning for this yeah so let me just firstly say I'm so sorry for your loss and there are no words that I can offer you that are going to cover how awful that is for you and your family thank you 
and also just the impact that it had on you is extraordinary but not necessarily like extraordinary in a surprising way extraordinarily bad for you you know that you your body and your mind had that reaction but I guess also just extraordinary that the health system couldn't help you in the way that you needed to be helped to heal and that's a like a you know a long old list of issues that you you know and challenges physically and emotionally that your body and your mind put you through and I'm you know I am truly sorry that you had to go through that and it is really interesting some of the things that you brought up like the difference in the way that grief is dealt with in different cultures the the way that you're expected to behave I suppose Mm. when you're dealing with grief and then yeah just I guess the lack of understanding of PTSD even then because that doesn't feel like that long ago does it but yeah that's right it's not that long ago yeah but but actually post-traumatic stress disorder clearly wasn't something that was being recognized properly then and dealt with properly then and on top of that you have the double whammy of like inequity and inequality in how black and brown people are treated in the health system. So that's a lot, kids. My yeah. goodness. <laughs> it's mad because like I didn't realise I was going through it at the time. I thought I was normal. I thought, oh, this isn't affecting me. I must be super strong. But what was happening was my behaviour and my body were being affected. So I'd put everything on the shutdown. So being so dissociated things weren't able to rock me emotionally and it it didn't get to me really until so many other factors in my life started to crumble so I had a a, a boss that was a bully at that point in my life I had a relationship that was starting to come to the end of its natural term I was going to move house sell a house blah 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 and these types of things are quite major in your life so the counsellor that I saw through the job that I was doing said that house relationship finance piece if any one of those three things is off kilter it can set the other ones on a domino effect but you've got all three so no and you've got all this pain that you've been carrying so no wonder you're in this situation it's like a normal yeah it's normal for you to have a you know breakdown like you're you're more able to cope than most people because you've been resilient through this but actually the PTSD has brought a lot of growth in my life. So it has been painful. But if I hadn't have had those experiences, I wouldn't have found a certain side of myself. Right. And actually, when my sister passed, I had a lot writer's block. So I did English literature with a creative writing element at uni. After she died, there was nothing in me. I thought this is, you know, the blue phase of Picasso. I could use this and channel my emotions nothing would come out I was so dislocated from my feelings and it wasn't until I found out 10 years after that my dad was actually terminal and I knew he was going to go I thought right I want to process this live while it's happening and not be in the same situation where I bottle it up break down and then it causes all sorts of ripple effects on my life 
So I started to look at ways that creative health could help and why it helped. And because I was going through such deep trauma and grief, those learnings then empowered me to offer them as gifts to other people. But unfortunately, the way that I saw things was, oh, I've been through something. I've made a discovery for myself. It'll be easy to pass it on. But at that point, I didn't know that there are structures in place to prevent this. So the way the medical systems are set up, we don't have training as medics or doctors or therapists on how expressive art therapy works, how music affects the brain, the neuroscience behind clay work and pottery, and why that can bring somebody's body into a state of balance. So if it's free and it's self-driven and it does so much good, why? Mm. Somebody making a profit from us being ill and it's pharmaceutical companies, the government makes a massive uh, income from tax on that. And it's better for us all to be ill, anxious and picking at our own scabs than looking at the people who are in power and what they're doing wrong. That's drifting off into my political views. No, no, well, I totally agree. And it is probably we could have a whole long conversation just on that, (laughs) couldn't we? I want to understand and I'd like other people to understand there are these layers layer Mm. upon layer of things happening in your life you know like you said any one or two of those things happening is gonna trigger something in somebody and you had multiples of layers of things going on and then you started to discover this concept of arts and health and using creativity for health and well-being and then going on to use that in a way to help other people but I want to kind of get under the skin a bit of like how you started using that for yourself and how you use creativity if it was creative writing how did that start to like Mm. you know peel back those layers and reveal you again yeah it was through cycling thoughts that weren't settling driving me insane I'd literally get to the point where um when my dad was you know, I found out that he was terminal. Uh, he had an autoimmune disease and it was undiagnosed for a long time. So he kept getting ill and ill and more ill and blah, blah, blah. So he wasn't right for a while. And um, I just kept getting words and phrases looping in my head, like on a musical production tool, like a looper. And the only way I could get them out was when I'd write them down. But then when I try and write the one thing down, it'd come out as a fully formed poem with loads of other stuff in there. So there'd be like a dynamite explosion. That creative spark that was with the looping thought, you could say that's a symptom of my PTSD, but it was also a tool for empowerment, for expression, because it acted as a catalyst. So maybe the mental disturbance if you use the Western medical mod- model terminology, that disturbance led to growth. So I was writing poems that were coming out as if they were auto-written and channeled from another entity, from space or something like that, because they were way beyond anything I could imagine I could write myself, way more technically 
accurate, technically adventurous, the language, the expression. I couldn't believe that I'd written them when I'd put them down and I'd look back at them. I was like, oh my God, where does that come from? <laughs> it was like somebody picking up a paintbrush and then suddenly doing an amazing piece of artwork and then thinking, oh, how did that get on there? Has somebody taken over my body? Like, because the poetry that I was writing before was rubbish. <laughs> you know I mean, it was like the musings of a, you know, a teenager kind of thing at uni. And and right. while I was producing, I thought, something's going on here. So I, I was talking to people about it, and I started looking at therapeutic writing. I discovered the work of James Pennebaker. So I started journaling through my dad's loss. And when he did die, I had, a, you know, a journal that I was going through the processing motions within and I started to train in that practice that form I I was an English teacher you know I was saying before I loved reading I was natural at English so it just seemed like a natural next step to do this training and it was the first cohort on that master's ever and the the discipline of creative writing for therapeutic purposes was really installed by Metanoia Institute And the leader at that time was Claire Williamson, and she led the course for 10 years and is my supervisor, my professional supervisor now in my own creative practice, my arts and health work. And so together, we've been able to chart a journey through my appearance on that course into discovering my current work in the modality of therapeutic hip-hop, which I can talk about later. But there's been a common thread there with this guide and mentor that's seen all the aspects of me and where I've been and where I'm going. So I've been very fortunate to be held by a inspirational and basically a mind-blowing leader in the field where this is a new discipline in a new, you know, newly recognised field of arts and health because it's not been recognised as being valid really for a very long time, even though it's been there, called different things, participatory arts, community arts, you know, all these sorts of labels have been there for a long time, but we've been doing arts and health work forever. Um, Cavemen and women have been doing it, but we've just not recognised what it is. Yeah, totally, totally agree. And so let's get on to Hip Hop Heels then. So you set up the CIC or you had the the brainchild of this organisation in 2012. You set up CIC in 2013 based in Birmingham I've got to correct you there sorry it was a concept as a project was set up in 2013 and then we worked with me as a freelancer as a sole trader for a while and then the CIC came about in the um, year that the pandemic had started so 2020 is when I set up the business and then it started to all change around the world okay all right thank you for that so tell me where did the concept come from were you a massive hip-hop fan and what was the early work that you were doing yeah so I went into my creative writing for therapeutic purposes masters thinking I'd write poetry I'd quite like to perform I'm not a rapper but I like the idea of doing some spoken word maybe I'll do a bit of spoken word and the course had a real strong sense of being outside of the western medical model it was dominated by black theory feminist theory queer theory outsider arts people being creative forces in themselves people being the support in the group not that all powerful 
knowledgeable facilitator with all the knowledge about health. It was people and, and the space that we created that was healing. So in those conditions, the seed for music that I listened to outside, drum and bass, reggae, jungle, hip-hop, ragga, dancehall, heavy metal and grunge, punk. I was thinking, okay, I've got these therapeutic techniques I'm learning. What about if I did that with a drum and bass MC's bars? And then my mates that I go to raves with would be able to do some of this kind of therapeutic work. Because if I say, do you want to come do words for well-being workshop? <laughs> Just be like, what the hell's that? Poetry. If you're starting to talk about spitting bars at the rave, then there's a different kind of attitude mm. about what that's going to involve. So my idea has always been about why are we doing workshops that only match the needs or the hobbies of a certain group? There's millions of people in Britain that come from different lands, that do different things, that celebrate in different ways. Basically, we're doing a really rubbish job of meeting everybody's needs. And my male friends are all creatives. Well, all my mates are creatives. I mean, music producers, DJs, artists, drummers, dancers, whatever. I've just been around that kind of group for all my life. And they wouldn't go to a workshop that's if you set up an arts and health workshop, I would see it say that the majority w- wouldn't go. Yeah. Not the blokes, but they're using the studio as their arts and health space. And so when they're going out, getting fans, getting their music out there and doing performances, they're awkward little dweebs in the corner, not wanting to talk to anybody because they're like, no, it's studio nerds. Oh, <laughs> kids, can you stay here? Because I don't want anyone to talk to me because I'm a two. Because they're like introverts. So I was like, okay. We need to create an arts and health activity where people like me that are in my friendship group that do things that I want to do, want to be in. And we need to provide a service for that. And I just thought if I was grieving and I had this on offer, I would be in a different scenario now. So maybe I should be setting up something around people who have unprocessed emotions and so on and so forth. And then the rest is history. It's amazing. And when you talk about it like that, you just think, gosh, that makes so much sense, doesn't it? It's just about providing safe spaces for people to engage in the things that interest them and the things that they love in a way that they then can express themselves. Yeah. It could it could be it could be crochet, it could be embroidery, it, you know, it could be any kind of creativity. Yeah, whatever it is, bark rubbing on trees, but you know, if you've got <laughs> End of the day, if you look at who goes to art school, who goes to medical school, what's the demographic, what's the class background, what are they experiencing, and then what are they delivering in their service, doesn't match the population. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. I was at a conference last week in Kent about health and social care, and there was a really brilliant speaker called Hilary Cottam. She wrote a book called Radical Help. And she was talking about this project that she was doing. I can't remember where it was. And she gave an example of this lady who had like multiple health issues and was on multiple amounts of medication. And when they sat down to her, because the point of the conversation that she was saying is that actually a lot of people know, they, they actually know what it is that they need to feel better 
And when they asked this lady, you know, what do you think is going to help you? What do you think is really going to help you? And her answer was, if she could just get back to doing her embroidery, she thought that would really help her feel a lot better. And so I'm not saying that like embroidery or singing or rapping or whatever is going to like cure everything because it isn't. But actually, sometimes it is just about engaging in the things that make you feel really happy. Because like you described, like you had this hugely traumatic event that happened to you. But some of the impacts of that on your health were psychosomatic, right? So sometimes these things don't need a clinical intervention, do they? No, no, you don't. I was just going to say, in fact, the clinical interventions usually, I'm going to swear now, it's usually shit (laughs) because it doesn't actually do what you want it to do. It might dampen down your brain receptors. And the idea of us having like a chemical brain imbalance and that makes us unwell we're sold lies constantly to keep us believing that what is provided is fine. The same with the dairy industry, same with the, you know, the health industry with the tablets and the pills, school. When you learn about colonialism in school, it's about, oh, we, you know, in the old days, it was a narrative of, oh, yeah, we helped to civilize the natives. And then as times have changed, it's like, oh, yeah, we, you know, this happened and then we took over and it's the word like oh we took over the land not there was multiple blood yeah we caused all this trauma life losses (laughs) and bloodshed and we you know raped and pillaged around and took gold from people's temples and blah 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 no we didn't do any of that it was just yeah we just went over there and then we exchanged ideas and then this is how we've got curry in this country oh look we've got spices the spice trade Who's telling that story and how is it manifesting in everyday perceptions? There's two different sides of this double-edged sword in many, many ways. And the grand narrative around health is that human beings can be fixed by tablets and that we can talk things out. And whatever is helpful and useful for the system and service provider that can be done en masse rolled out to multiple people with the least intervention and individualization, the better for the system. But what you've just talked about, asking a person, what would help you right now? How would you feel better? And somebody saying, embroidery. When you were saying those words, my thoughts immediately went to, what would I say if somebody asked me right now? And the words that came out were, I'd want to get out into a room with some drums and some music and some paint and mess and like have stuff on the floor and just make a whole big heap of mess and sound. That's what I would need. But if you think about the cost to tailor that to me and offer that in one hour or weekly and provide a service where a facilitator was trained in trauma and delivering the art side of it, the music side of it, the therapeutic side of it, the cost of that for me and then multiply me by the millions of people who were traumatized across the world or across the country. And then think about, okay, somebody else might need an embroidery workshop for six weeks to just get back to feeling a little bit more normal. How can we as service providers provide those things? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a like it's a massive challenge, isn't it? It's it's, yes. it's hugely expensive, yeah. but I guess that comes back to the idea and the point of trying to spread the message and change the perception of arts and culture amongst the general population that it is really good for your health and well-being so that people take these things up for themselves they don't necessarily need to go to an intervention because actually they know that there's like a knit and nutter group down the road in their local pub or there's some kind of studio in a basement of a pub down the road and kids are laying down tracks and they can go there and yeah get involved so it it is about both isn't it it's you know the whole creative health arts and health agenda like we need to have some stuff that is funded that is structured that is an intervention but we also need people to just adopt these things for themselves and to get involved in what's going on in their communities yeah Well, look at what's happening in the curriculum, going back to the sort of teaching world, art, drama, dance, music, squeeze out the curriculum with this stupid idea that if you do more maths, English and science, you're suddenly going to get more kids that are better at maths, English and science. Has it worked? No. So why are we still doing it? In places like Finland and Denmark, you don't even learn maths and English and science until you're seven, you're outdoors playing all day. But the cognitive processes that those children are strengthening, the social bonds and their internal systems that they're developing will carry them forward so that when they do learn geography and science and stuff like that after seven, they've got the mental framework and the neural pathways to hold that information and be intellectual when they interact with it, interrogate the information and be critical, be inquirers, be reflective thinkers. What kid who's age seven in England is doing that kind of work? Yeah, I know. And again, <laughs> that could be another spin-off podcast. <laughs> I've been really militant about no, everything, but like... I I'm love it. I love it. Saying what I really think. No, but this is, this is exactly what this podcast is all about. And I think it just goes to show just what a huge and important subject this is. Because actually we could do a podcast episode on any one of these subjects for, for an hour all by themselves, couldn't we? <laughs> let's get back to um hip-hop heels and and then moving on to your current work yeah I'd love to I mean really what we're saying is that you know any kind of creation of sort of artistic output can be viewed in therapeutic terms and that's not to be dismissive and take away from you know art therapists music therapists who train really hard to learn Mm. that and like you've Mm -hmm. done in creative writing therapy but if you think about it like you said earlier we've actually always as humans used art as a form of therapy so if you think about where hip-hop and rap sort of started to surface in the 1970s in the Bronx, although its origins are way older than that. Yeah, yeah, thank you for yeah, saying no, that. that. Lots of people don't recognise that, you know, there's people rap in hymns and all around the world people have used rhyming couplets to tell stories in ballads and oral histories, so everybody raps. Yeah, <laughs> and people have done that you know, these oral histories, these traditions of storytelling or poetry 
or rap as a way of like processing what's going on in their lives. So, you know, rap music with maybe disenfranchised young black kids, you know, or other marginalized groups from low income areas hanging out on the street corners, dealing with life's issues through music and songwriting and performance. And so, you know, although we understand therapy to be or sometimes we understand it to be like a treatment somebody has in order to heal or relieve an illness that they already have. But actually, if you participate in all of those things as part of your day to day life, they can also be very preventative, can't they? Mm-hmm. So I just, <laughs> that's a bit of a rant on my half. Yeah, but... no, no, it's great. So, in terms of hip hop heels, then tell me more about the trajectory of that work. So we started out with the intention of doing creative expression through hip-hop, rap, music, looking at videos, using my therapeutic training around writing, but in an accessible form. As time went on, I did work with offenders in recovery, people in secure units with mental health problems, where they were sectioned and basically the keys thrown away because they're too unwell and they're not going to be released unless they're mentally well people in homeless situations, refugees, asylum seekers, really marginalised people and young people in schools and so on. So what I realised was I don't want to work in schools because I don't agree with the school system and I hated the environment. So I tried doing some therapeutic work in schools, but just kids, because of the psychology of the space, for me, I just couldn't bear it because it reminded me of everything I hated about being a teacher and fair play to anybody who's still stuck at it. I respect you. So it's not teachers that are the problem. It's the system I'm mm-hmm. saying here. So I wanted to work with adults. And there's an idea that if the parents aren't able to create a steady, stable, emotionally predictable you know, environment, the flower's not going to bloom. You know, the seed's not going to develop. And you need love and stability and certainty as a as a young person you need to have boundaries where those things aren't there if somebody's in chaos it's harder to break the cycle of trauma and mental illness so i was working with adults through some complex issues and challenges and the results i was getting were phenomenal i'm not going to like sit here and say that I'm the best I'm doing you know the most amazing work ever lots of people have amazing results because they're doing good work what I saw was people were saying to me that I've got a reason to stay out of prison I'm 53 I've been out of jail for three months now because of your workshop giving me something to come back for every week whereas since I was 16 I remained in and out of prison and I wasn't out for longer than six weeks I'd just go back in so for a 53 year old man to say that to me I'm thinking you know I've just come out of uni for the you know umpteenth time doing this master's now and I'm this is like one of the first sort of series of workshops I've been doing must be doing something right because this has had a profound effect on somebody's life and you know people opening up about stories of abuse and so on and so forth so What I started to realise was there were some deeper issues that I was able to work with in a safe way with people. And there was a sense that because I'd been open at the start, I'd said, look, 
things in my life haven't gone to plan. This happened. I didn't go into so much detail. Just said that, you know, I'd had a family loss with a sibling, car accident, and went off the rails. All sorts of stuff happened. I've had a breakdown. And then I found some tips, found some stuff that helped me get through. So now I want to work with other people to help you. And so there was this idea that, oh, there's somebody who gets it. So having that lived experience was a massive bridge between us. And it didn't matter that we were different backgrounds or different ages or you don't like rap and I do. None of that mattered. It was like, what do you actually like? What do you fancy doing here? Because um, if you just write on a piece of paper, a couple of things that you like, you know, hobbies wise, we can incorporate that into the course. So it was co-producing from the very start. And I always had been doing that because I'd been actually been doing participatory community arts work since 2000 while I was a teacher and getting into that alongside my teaching career. But then the health and well-being piece of, of that work only came to light for me when I started to become ill mentally myself in 2007. So by the time it gets to 2018 and I've qualified from this course, where creative facilitation and group therapy modalities and person-centered humanistic approaches were like the underpinnings, I was starting to see, okay, we can work more in this kind of way with different groups. So I started working with homeless people who couldn't speak English. And then there were the challenges of doing a creative writing course with non-English speakers. So I learned all these other kind of things. And it's been like carving a stone into a sculpture all of these different workshops, each individual that's been in a workshop that I've learned from has changed my practice and changed how I think about practice. So I'm still to learn. I'm still on the journey. But what I found for me is my mental health has been the driving force in refining down all these ideas and chiseling away the excess, not because it's not important, but because it's not so relevant to me and my life. And because I see so much arts and health work that isn't relevant and appealing to me in my life, I only do what's relevant and appealing to me in my life because I want it out there for others because I'm not the only person who likes drum and bass and reggae. I'm not the only person who likes hip-hop and going out to dance. Mm. So, you know, 200,000 people at Glastonbury every year, which arts and health services are they accessing and are you providing as listeners? Yeah. What is going on? <laughs> I know. I know. It's it is bonkers. And so I know that you're doing another role at the moment. We're going to come on to that. Yeah. But is Hip Hop Heels still operating? Can people still get involved in the work? Yes. So I've written a book chapter in a text that's coming out online in December. This is December 23, and the book's called Music for Healing um in music for healing and something 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 <laughs> in, in my mind's gone blank that's ptsd for you but it's it's music in education and healing context um like schools and beyond like with grime and techno yeah. and hip-hop being mentioned and um it's a collaborative text written by people who were at a conference by the human network that researches and explores the evaluation and impact of um, bass music and electronic underground music in the UK. So they're really promoting and strengthening the discipline in terms of strengthening those key aspects that some of us 
might not understand or might not have experience of. If we're musicians or we're artists, we might not have done evaluative theory or look, look at what quantitative and qualitative means Yeah. In, in terms of research. So that music network, the Cumin network, is all about strengthening those aspects in the field. So that's one thing. At the moment, I'm also being funded by the Bering Foundation in Qualities Charity. They have provided us with some money to develop a trauma-informed hip-hop course online for people with global majority backgrounds, so non-white people, to learn about how to do trauma-informed work. And I'll be putting those online uh, with my colleague David Williams, who runs Forward Ever Education on an online school, which he runs. That will be coming out in 2024. Fantastic. Then we've just been invited to do some workshops with a charity. So I won't say too much about that because it's still in development. But we do actually have our own podcast called Glow with the Flow. Yes. And while I've been in this sort of post-pandemic sort of shift, I've also experienced a massive relapse in PTSD as well over the pandemic, which meant that the trajectory I was on doing all those workshops in the past, I was unable to maintain. Once I set the company up, we actually had a whole program devised by our youth panel, co-produced, ready to go, venues booked. And then the first one was on April the 19th. And the pandemic was like literally starting in 2020 at that time. So we pivoted to doing a podcast. So the experts that I'd read about on my MSc for creative writing for therapeutic purposes suddenly became accessible by Zoom. Zoom was a new word. We didn't know what it was before the pandemic. So I basically got them on Zoom and started chatting to them and saying, what's hip hop therapy to you? How do you do it? What do you think we need in the field to spread it? And then they were saying all this stuff. And I started to think about, okay, lots of people from America there. And, you know, I spoke to some rappers over here as well. But the first season was 12 episodes on what is hip hop therapy. So I did a hero's journey. So for those of you who are not sure about what that means, it's a set of 12 steps that occur in most myths and legends around the world that have been identified to match human psychological processes. So there's a match between sort of narrative therapy and human processing. Anyway, the podcast has ended up being a hero's journey. So I have 12 episodes in one season, which is like the 12 steps. And then I have actually the Wu-Tang Clan's album, Enter the 36 Chambers, as my muse here because I referred to that in my own thesis and I went on a hero's journey through 36 mountain chambers and I found out about how hip-hop therapy works in each chamber through invisible scrolls I had to reveal by completing a challenge like the crystal maze oh wow this was an imagined quest that I sort of wrote about as part of my thesis and it was a piece of narrative inquiry poetic inquiry so the podcast is a narrative inquiry into lived experience whereby people talk about their experience of rap as a therapeutic uh, approach in their own lives and season two was like the special world so rap moving from the states into the uk how do we bring that knowledge from the therapy and hip-hop world in the states into the world of the uk festival goer 
the drum and bass fan like me who's not into hip hop or maybe is into hip hop but doesn't have the hip hop context of the states where it's very ingrained in the curriculum the culture you know it's everywhere um over here it's completely different the clubs don't have hip hop every weekend in this country they're playing house techno drum and bass you don't get hip hop in the nightclubs over here in the same way so i was thinking who should i speak to about how to do this work here I thought we'll go back to the idea of the mental archetype that you have in Jungian psychology in the 12 steps of the hero's journey. Step four is meeting your mentor. So I met all my mentors. I phoned up a load of rappers and MCs that I know because, I'm, like I said, I'm part of the music world in this country. I'm a club promoter as well. I do events and things. So I phoned up a load of rappers in the UK and said, what do you do to write a song? How do you use words to help your headspace? And the driving force behind that was to role model men, black men, young men, talking about emotional topics through writing that could role model for other people and uh, encourage them to use therapeutic writing. So I could see a gap. Therapeutic writing groups in across the country are run by white middle-class women, you know, yep. past a certain stage in the majority. There's nothing wrong with them or that but when there isn't an alternative that is then a problem because there's an exclusion for other people to feel welcome and for their needs to be met because you might not think of something that would be relevant you might not have the cultural reference to be able to talk about a song or a hymn uh, from a culture that's beyond yours and that's not your fault it's just that you don't know it so it's just not in your experience yeah thank you for that and so you are currently the lived experience and program coordinator for the mobilizing community assets program at UCL that (laughs) is quite a mouthful Um, and you're working with Helen Chatterjee and Helen was the first guest on this podcast so she did talk quite a lot about that program and I feel like for you and I hope you don't mind me saying this but it feels like doing that work sort of feels a bit like coming full circle in a way absolutely yeah it's like the job was made (laughs) for me because you've got all this experience (laughs) you know good bad and ugly and you're now channeling all of that into supporting others to bring their lived experience to the table and you know, making that a more mainstream way of working, way of doing research and evidencing and planning health services, which is all just amazing. What are you enjoying about the work? Thank you. It's a really good question. Oh, I love every day. To be fair, I feel like I'm I'm doing things that I love and enjoy anyway, that I was doing in Hip Hop Heels, but now I'm able to do them on a wider scale in a different environment with different resources. I love working with individuals and helping to coach people through the sort of lived experience minefield because people forget that lived experience is really tricky and we have lots of emotions, lots of past experiences that are held in the body and held in the mind. And when you're starting to unravel those stories, you also need to create a safe space. And that's the work that I've already been doing. The way that I relate to others is I always say that, you know, I'm somebody that's experienced inequality. The program's called 
mobilising community assets to tackle health inequalities. I'm the lived experience coordinator. I have lived experience. And the way that I want to work with people is to help them to feel safe and to help them to um, learn ways to use their own lived experience um, in the service of others, but also in a way that doesn't deplete us and our own resources, which is the key. That's another part of the double-edged sword. Giving doesn't mean that you drain your cup. You only give if your cup is full and overflowing, so you've got extra. Yeah. I know, that's such an important point to make there, isn't it? Because nobody can just keep giving and giving of themselves. Like you, you know, I know we all, everybody always talks about self-care. Sometimes it's slightly annoying phrase, but it's actually really true we've got to look after yourself and you've got to like you say you've got to have a full cup and be overflowing in order for you to give and to help other people oh kids mate this is like (laughs) been a whirlwind of a conversation and I've loved all of it thank you and you are such a force to be reckoned with and a force for good (laughs) you've been described amongst other things as a poet, a facilitator, a story director, storyteller, event organizer, fundraiser, volunteer, activist. You are someone who just does good and you spread positivity and healing, you know, in your life and in your work. And I want to thank you for that and the work that you do to support others and for being a brilliant spokesperson and advocate for for the creative health movement. Thank you for holding this space and allowing me to freely express what I really think and feel. I didn't feel like at any point that I should tamper down what I was saying because you also made me feel so secure and you encouraged me and um, set the parameters before we started and made me feel like I was comfortable. So you've made this podcast happen so that other guests can also talk about all their lived experience and their equal and unequal experiences and that's something that we need more of so that we can hear all these different stories so thank you thank you for having me you're so very welcome and I hope to catch up with you really soon thank you Laura take care thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more please rate review and subscribe follow the show on instagram at creativehealthpod and via the website creative-health.co.uk. This episode was edited by Penny Bell. Creative Health Podcast has been supported through Kent County Council's Arts Investment Fund.